Here's something that we've all experienced and something that we can all relate to. Someone doing us wrong. Someone doing us dirty. Sadly, this is universal to the human experience. Sometimes others wrong us, but other times we're the ones doing the wrong to others. But when someone has wronged us, what's our immediate visceral reaction? It's you have to pay, isn't it, right? I want restitution. I want justice for this wrong. And I'd prefer this to happen as quickly as possible. And this is how it is from the youngest age. Uh, this is not something that we have to be taught. It just seems to come naturally. Uh, just watch children play, which for some reason, you know, mysterious reason often leads to fighting. Uh, you know, often goes like this. Jenny stole that doll from me. And that's why I pulled her hair, and then she punched me in the head. Uh, names may have been changed there to protect the identity of some Choi kids. Um, now that said, kids seem to understand the principle, very naturally, of eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, which is really the principle of pain for pain and harm for harm. Now, as a civilized society, we may shun the literal eye-for-an-eye eye approach, but really, uh, this is uh, one way or another every human culture system of law and justice, right? They're all built around this driving conviction, which is wrongs must be repaid. Now, the Bible has a, a word for these moral wrongs that we commit. They're called sins, and why do we react the, the way that we do when sins are committed against us? Here's Tim Keller's helpful answer. When you are sinned against, you lose something. Perhaps happiness, reputation, peace of mind, a relationship, or an opportunity. In all cases, when a wrong is done, there is a debt. And there is no way to deal with it without suffering. Either you make the perpetrator suffer for it, or you forgive and suffer for it yourself. Now here's why, exactly why forgiveness is so very difficult, so counterintuitive, feels so unnatural to us, doesn't it? Because ultimately what forgiveness means is that we're canceling that debt by paying it, or absorbing it, or suffering it ourselves, which means forgiveness always comes at a cost as someone always pays for every moral debt. And it's this matter of forgiveness that our passage confronts us with today because what's happening here in Philemon is that there's a serious moral relational debt that needs to be reckoned with in order for true reconciliation to be able to take place and upon close inspection of Philemon, what, what we're offered here is actually something like an invaluable biblical roadmap for reconciliation between believers. So here are the three points that I'll be making from our passage today. Yes, that's great. It's always great when it works the first time. Point number one, reconciliation is costly. Reconciliation is costly. Point number two, Reconciliation gives rest. And number three, reconciliation brings hope. 
So the first thing that our passage wants to remind us today, I'll just take that off the screen for now, is that reconciliation does not come cheap because reconciliation is costly. Now, as we learned last week, the Apostle Paul wrote this letter to Philemon, uh, his brother in Christ, pleading with him to welcome back Onesimus, who is Philemon's estranged runaway bondservant. And Paul wants Onesimus to be welcomed back, not just as a bondservant, right? But as a fellow brother in Christ. Because while Onesimus was away, Jesus got a hold of him. Jesus actually changed Onesimus and he became a Christian through Paul's ministry. Uh, It actually happened in prison as well. And he experienced this drastic transformation, so much so that Onesimus even became this active, valuable ministry partner to Paul. Now, why would Paul want to ruin such a good thing, you know, this great ministry that he has going on with Onesimus, by sending him back to Philemon? Paul at this point might have been tempted to think, hey, as long as we're doing the Lord's work, can't we just brush this whole matter of Onesimus being a fugitive runaway under the rug? He's been so helpful to me, especially during these hard times in prison. Uh, By the way, we don't know for sure, but there's some strong hints in this letter that Onesimus, when he ran away from Philemon, he ran away with some serious loot, uh, and it wasn't all that uncommon for runaway servants to um, line their pockets a little bit with money or valuables in order to support themselves while they're on the run. Now, Paul does indeed send Onesimus back along with this letter because he knew what was worthy of the gospel, right? which was to make things right with Philemon. In fact, it was because Philemon and Onesimus were now brothers in Christ, that it was more important, not less so, that they go and be reconciled. And just how important was this reconciliation to Paul? He had a close relationship with both of them. Well, uh, it was so important to Paul that he offered to step in Onesimus' very place identifying himself completely with him and whatever would happen to him so that these brothers might make peace. Look with me at verse 17. Verse 17. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it to say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. So Paul literally puts his money where his mouth is. Verse verse 19, right? I write this with my own hand. I will repay it. Now, in those times, this was the equivalent of a signed legal IOU, binding in court, right? So what we're also seeing here is something of a powerful glimpse into what gospel-shaped reconciliation looks like. And the first important thing to notice here is that Paul isn't trying to minimize Onesimus' trespass, not in any way whatsoever, right? Paul doesn't say, hey, Philemon, 
Can't we just let bygones be bygones? You know, forgive and forget. Because Jesus, sorry, uh, minimizing sin in any way, uh, that's not of Jesus. So instead, Paul fully recognizes the injustice, right? He, he actually offers to pay. And this is, not, this is not just sentimental, to pay for whatever debts remain. And yet, Paul does also throw in there uh, how Philemon owes Paul his very self. Interesting little wrinkle. So what's Paul trying to pull here? Actually, I think he's doing this as a brother, as a friend. I think Paul is trying to remind Philemon here that even if the financial debt is covered, that won't necessarily deal with the root issue. It's a relational issue. You can't just throw money at it. And money alone cannot ever just bring genuine, not of compulsion love, can it? And I think that when it comes to most of our sinful conflicts, um, they always go just beyond material losses, don't they? Right? Because the damage that is done when we sin against each other, it's never just contained at the material level, which definitely matters. But the damage goes deeper to the relational, to the heart level, which means this. The harm of all sin is ultimately spiritual in nature. And that's how the sins we commit actually reverberate into all eternity. So, in order for true forgiveness and thus true reconciliation to come about, between any of us, actually, we're in desperate need of something that goes far beyond the limited power of, of superficial restitutions or merely transactional justice. What we need is the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's only as we see who we are in light of who God really is, do we get our true bearings for reconciliation. And this is why our, our first reading today was the parable of the unforgiving servant in Matthew 18, which reminds us that the ultimate power to forgive lies not in us or our virtue, but in remembering that we ourselves are forgiven. And not just forgiven, but just how much we're forgiven, because in Jesus' parable, how much, how much did the first servant owe the king? 10,000 talents, right? All right? A single talent was worth about 20 years of a person's labor. 20 years. So here's what 10,000 talents in today's dollars would be worth. Roughly $400 billion. All right? It's an absurd amount, and the point of that is this. It's basically an impossible debt that no one, none of us could ever hope to repay. And that's a picture of what we ultimately owe God. Now the king does indeed call this servant to reckon with this crushing debt, and the servant, fully aware of his sheer inability to pay, begs for mercy, pathetically offering to make restitution somehow. Just give me time. It's delusional, actually, his response. 
but we'd all probably do the same thing. But the real shock of the story comes early. Out of pity for him, the king forgives his servant and releases him from this most heinous of debts. Now keep in mind that uh, a debt of $400 billion uh, doesn't just disappear off the books or, or uh, once it's forgiven just goes into thin air. Because someone will have to pay. Someone will have to suffer that insanely enormous loss. Which means this, that it's none other than the king himself who suffers that loss. He's the one that absorbs it. And all for the sake of who? An unworthy servant shown grace upon grace, infinite mercy. Once again, this is a picture of who we are if we are in Christ. Sadly, the the parable does end on a tragic note because the first servant, after he's forgiven the the 10,000 talent debt, uh, goes out to collect some of his own personal debt from another servant to the tune of 100 denarii, uh, about $10,000. Not an insignificant sum in worldly terms. You and I are going to beef over $10,000. But ultimately, it's a pittance, right? It's nothing compared to the debt that he was just forgiven. And when this forgiven servant doesn't get his money right away, chokes the other servant, and in a rage has the other guy thrown into prison. But then word of this unconscionable, scandalous act gets back to the king, who then, in an exercise of perfectly righteous anger, perfectly righteous anger, promptly throws the unforgiving, ungrateful servant into prison, ultimately with no hope of release. Jesus then closes the parable with the following warning to his disciples. So, also, my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Um, that from your heart clause is, is very crucial. Because it's, it's, what was ultimately exposed about the first servant's heart and how he related or treated his fellow servant. Was it not a heart full of profound contempt for the infinitely costly mercies of his king and therefore the king himself? Now tell me, what kind of hearts might we have toward our fellow brothers and sisters, our fellow debtors, who are just as uh, unable as us to pay if we've been forgiven our own impossible debt? Perhaps we might have hearts that welcome other debtors as the king has welcomed us. Because who is our king, after all? Is he not the Lord Jesus, who has afforded us the most costly reconciliation ever offered to mankind? Multiply that $400 billion debt by a couple billion or trillion. Is he not the only one who's seeing the the utter hopelessness of our sinful condition, took pity on us, came down from his throne, 
and became pitiable himself, humbling himself in every human way imaginable, even to the point of death on a cross, his arms outstretched wide there as if he is embracing and holding out in welcome, all of us in our abject poverty. Because it was there on the cross that, that Jesus suffered the greatest loss imaginable, right? Willingly absorbing in himself all the horrific, immeasurable debt of our sins and even pleading for forgiveness in that very moment for those who are crucifying and mocking him. So if we are now forgiven and reconciled, adopted sons of this crucified and risen king, might we pray from our hearts as the king has taught us to pray, which goes like this. Abba, Father, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. So here Philemon is uh, confronted with his fellow debtor, Onesimus. And the question is, and, and I, could, I could very much feel this way too, will, will Philemon have what it takes to forgive? Does he have enough to cancel this debt and suffer the cost so that he can be reconciled to his new brother, Onesimus, an old enemy? I think by faith, the answer is a resounding yes, because elsewhere, Paul explains what we truly have in Christ. It's not poverty anymore. This is why Jesus chose to suffer the humiliation of the cross for us. Let me go ahead and put it on the screen there. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, Yet for your sake, he became poor so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. So Jesus not only covers our debts, but he came so that we might become truly rich. And here's what true riches are, by the way. It's not material things. True riches is true rest. Ironically, many of the people looking for, you know, their salvation and, and riches and material things, this is what they're looking for. True rest. But you won't find true rest in the things of this world. Because true rest is found where? Only in Christ Jesus and the reconciliation of all things that is predicted by the scriptures how all things will be given to him. Which brings us to our second point today, which is reconciliation gives rest. Look with me at verse 20 where Paul makes the closest thing to like a, a demand of Philemon in this letter. Verse 20. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Uh, now you may be thinking at this point, I don't see the word rest here, <laughs> to which I say thanks for paying attention. Um, because it's actually the word translated here as refresh that can also be translated as rest. In fact, that's exactly how it's translated in the famous saying from Jesus in, in Matthew eleven twenty-eight. 28. 
Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Um, and here's the thing about Philemon, actually, is that he was already well known as someone who generously shared the rest that he had in Christ with others. Uh, look up at verse 7 in Philemon, where Paul says, For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed, that is, given rest through you. And by the way, the word describing Philemon's love there, it's agape, right? Which is the word for divine love. It's God's very love. It's the kind of love that selflessly, selflessly seeks out what is best for others, even when they don't deserve it. Now skip back down to verse 20 where Paul pulls this out again, right? He pulls the big guns here and asks Philemon, I want some benefit from you and the Lord. Refresh or give rest to my heart in Christ. Um, once again, don't miss that Paul asks these things in the Lord and in Christ. This is so important because Paul knows that this reconciliation between Philemon and Onesimus will only be possible through their Savior and Lord, Jesus Christ. And it's in Christ that Philemon is about to drive the point home to, uh, uh, in, in, with, with some beautiful wordplay. And I'm sure it's going to jump out at Philemon, and I want to see if I can demonstrate it here. Because when uh, Paul declares, yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord, uh, the word translated as benefit, it's actually the Greek word onamen. What's that sound like? Onesimus, right? Benefit, useful. Um, and actually, Onaman sounds a bit like Philemon, right? Ah, he's, uh, he's a genius. He's inspired. What can I say? Then Paul asked Philemon, refresh my heart. Give rest to my heart in Christ. Now, who was it that Paul spoke of as his very heart earlier in verse 12? It was Onesimus, wasn't it? Right? None other than Brother Onesimus. Uh, do you see what, what Paul is doing here as he's closing out this letter? Because I think uh, verse 20 can read like this. Philemon, I want Onesimus, the useful one, from you in the Lord. And that means I want you to grant rest to him because he's my very heart. Please forgive Onesimus and be reconciled to him because I want you to know and share the rest that we all have in Christ. This is Paul ultimately inviting Philemon as well as us to see these difficult trials of forgiveness and reconciliation that come our way not as potential enemies of our rest but possibly as invitations to grow in knowledge and participation of his rest. 
Now I say this in full recognition of the fact that forgiveness and reconciliation are some of the most challenging and complex matters of this life. I'm not trying to put down some black and white rule here um, because sometimes we'll earnestly pursue reconciliation with someone else, but they're not having it. But both parties need to desire it and work toward it. Otherwise, it just doesn't happen. I think in such cases, uh, Romans chapter 12, verse 18 very much applies. I'll read it quickly here, where Paul says, If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Meaning you can't force peace with everyone. But you're still called in Christ by faith to do your part. That said, uh, I do want to challenge us today to walk worthy of this gospel, especially if you came here today feeling a bit restless. Perhaps there's a fellow believer here or some, at some other church you're holding a small or big grudge toward. I'd like to ask you then uh, just this simple question. Um, who is holding your hurt? Is it you or the Lord? Now you can probably guess who should hold it because he's the one holding you. And unforgiveness really can be one of the most wearying, labor-intensive, exhausting uh, ways of living around. And thankfully, here's what Jesus has to say to those who are weary, laboring, and heavy laden. He says, come to me. Come to me, and I will give you rest. He's going to be the source of your rest. He will be the power for your reconciliation. Go to Jesus. And now we come to our third and final point today, which is reconciliation brings hope. Reconciliation brings hope. And that's because Paul closes this letter with uh, kind of an unexpected request that's full of hope and confidence. Look with me at verse 21. Verse 21. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I'm hoping that through your prayers, I will be graciously given to you. So, uh, in a surprising turn, Paul closes by asking Philemon to prepare a guest room for him to stay, as he hopes to be freed from prison sometime in the near future. Um, and what's the, what's the basis for Paul's hope? Ultimately, it's the Lord hearing our prayers. All right? I love that. As well, Paul, I think... He's also trying to remind Philemon, hey, uh, welcome Onesimus as you would welcome me because uh, actually I may be coming next. See you soon. <laughs> I think Paul's hope is actually quite beautiful. He's hoping that they'd all be together soon. Onesimus, Philemon, and Paul together as this new creation that, that Jesus Christ has made. Not just as friends, but as fellow co-laborers carrying on the work of gospel ministry in Christ. 
But for a moment, just imagine if Philemon had spurned this request and refused to be reconciled to Onesimus. Imagine the, the ugly relational ripple effect that would have ensued. You know, first the damage to Philemon's own relationship and walk with Christ, and then further relational damage and heartache with Onesimus and Paul, which probably would have been like a relational bomb thrown right into the middle of this little church. Sadly, I think we've all experienced or even heard of something similar. Uh, Cases of brothers and sisters refusing to repent, refusing to be reconciled, which leads to this chaotic division and, and which just fuels further distrust of the church with outsiders. Let me just say this, uh, without forgiveness and reconciliation, without the gospel being applied in the body of Christ, faithfully, consistently, uh, there's ultimately no hope for any of us. But once again, we do not live as those without hope. And Christ's church will stand. And that's why, ultimately, I think Paul seems really confident and hopeful about all this. Um, now, some of you may, be, uh, may have wondered at this point, do we have any idea what actually happened to Onesimus or Philemon? Um, we have one possible clue, which is, according to early church tradition, Onesimus went on to become um, basically an overseer of an entire region. And then he was eventually martyred for his faith. Is this the same Onesimus that's mentioned in Philemon? I wouldn't doubt it. Now, uh, today, as well as last week, we've been emphasizing how uh, the way we welcome one another is ultimately dependent upon how Christ has welcomed us. Right? He's the great initiator. And here's another beautiful a way that Christ has welcomed us as his disciples, okay? It's a promise that gives us all a living hope. What's this hopeful, living promise? Simply this. The king has gone ahead of us to prepare a room for us. John chapter 14. Here's what the Lord says. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And uh, unlike Philemon's place, uh, Jesus isn't just preparing for us some temporary guest room, which can only be so restful. But no, um, he's preparing for us a room in our Heavenly Father's house, our true forever home. Don't ever call your current house your forever home. Okay, it's not. (laughs) Father's house is our place of true rest. But how can this be? How can this be? Because it's not the job of the king to go and prepare a room for his servants. 
It doesn't work like that now, does it? But Jesus is no ordinary king. He is the crucified and risen Lord who out of his great love for us has canceled our debt, suffering the cost of all of our sin so that we might find true rest and be welcomed into his very presence forever as sons and daughters. So we're welcomed to his presence not just by ourselves, right? It's with one another. You know, the, the yous there that Jesus says, they're all in the plural. Uh, he promises to come again and take you all, plural, to myself, that where I am you all, you know, may be also. So brothers and sisters, let us welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. And let us share generously, lavishly spend the riches of his reconciliation with one another so that we may abide in his rest and walk in hope. Verse 25, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen.